Well, good morning. You guys always do that so much better than the other serves. Hi. How are you? Thank you. Well, my name is uh, Dave Davis. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, but I'm not Ray. Ray and uh, Margie uh, have gone to Tennessee to visit their son at uh, college. And uh, so I'm here uh, with you this morning. And uh, I'd like you to open your Bible or grab a Bible in the chair in front of you and open it to Exodus chapter 20. If you've been with us for a few weeks, you most likely know we are in the middle of a series called It Starts With Ten. If you haven't been with us for the entire series, what we're doing is we're taking a closer look at the Ten Commandments. And we recognize that while the Ten Commandments were there, that that was the beginning, that it started with the Ten Commandments. And Scripture and the work of Jesus amplifies their intent and their meaning. One of the things we've learned over the past few weeks is that these commandments were given to the Israelites after they were rescued from captivity in Egypt. The entire nation had been in captivity. They had been enslaved for centuries. So for them, freedom was a brand new deal. And in an effort to help the Israelites navigate this newfound freedom, God gave them the Ten Commandments. They are intended to help them live with God and with each other as free people. They exist to help them understand community and their relationships with each other. They are not meant to be an exhaustive list of what is required to live as a child of God. They are, at best, a minimum standard. But as we have seen throughout this series, it only starts here. The ten are divided into two sections. The first four are there to illustrate or illuminate or to enhance the nation's relationship with God. It is a vertical communication. The first four are what we have already looked at are this. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make yourself an idol. You must not... Uh, misuse the Lord's name. Remember to keep the Sabbath day holy. These four are there to improve or give direction for the nation's relationship to God. And consequently, to you and I. They are there to design, they are designed to help us have a better, more meaningful relationship with God. The balance of the Ten Commandments, the remaining six, are there to instruct how to live life as a community, how to be a good neighbor. We've talked about two of them already. Last, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about honoring your father and your mother. And last week, we talked about not murdering anybody. Which brings us to today's topic. We're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and I'm going to read it for you because it's very, very long. You shall not commit adultery. Let's pray and go home. <laughs> Believe me when I tell you this has not been an easy message to prepare. This is not an easy topic to discuss. It makes people nervous. There's an awkwardness with it. All week long, people have been saying, what are you going to talk about? And I'd say, adultery. And they look at me with this, Deer in a headlight, I feel so bad for you. 
why isn't Ray talking about that sort of look? <laughs> not only is Ray not talking about it, he decided to ditch down. <laughs> In fact, this is a message where multiple people over the last week or so have reached out to me and said, listen, this is what I'm going through. Is it okay for me to come? Or my friend has been walking through this. Is it going to be okay for them? And I think that this topic has such a sensitivity around it because it has impacted so many people. It's very, very prevalent. It's everywhere that we look. And the Bible talks about adultery in two ways. There's the kind that we know, which is a sexual, physical adultery, but there's also the idea of a spiritual adultery. Sexual adultery or physical, um, sexual adultery is a physical or emotional intimacy between two people when one or more of them is married to someone else. Spiritual adultery is what happens when we allow something into our life that adulterates our relationship with God. Where we take the perfect God-given plan that he has for you and for me, and we interject something counterfeit or less than perfect into that relationship. We are all susceptible to adultery in one form or another. All of us. We don't have this one mastered. We're all susceptible to spiritual or physical adultery. Both kinds of adultery are discussed throughout Scripture. The same basic language is used in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18. The book of Leviticus discusses the legal punishment for adultery. It is mentioned throughout the Old Testament, specifically and illustratively. Much of the book of Psalm is written as David's repentance for his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And then in the New Testament, Jesus, in the middle of what is the most influential sermon ever preached, brings it up again. But this time, he amplifies it. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard it said, Jesus here is speaking and referring to the Old Testament law. He's referring to the Ten Commandments as well as others. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who looks at someone else's spouse with lust in their heart or mind has already committed adultery. You see, Jesus isn't doing away with the Seventh Commandment. Instead, he's giving clarity to it by reminding us that adultery begins in the heart and in the mind. You see, whether it's spiritual adultery or physical adultery, whether it happens in the real world or whether it happens in your heart and mind, it's all really, really bad. And God's desire is to protect us from it. When I was young, I had a girlfriend and I had a best friend. I have forgotten the girlfriend's name, but my best friend's name was Jason, Jason Whitaker. He and I did everything together. He lived on a farm. And we came, I came out to the farm to spend the night one time, and we literally killed the chicken that we ate that night for dinner. I mean, it was fantastic. But I had this girlfriend, 
and he decided that he liked my girlfriend. And my girlfriend decided that she liked him more than me. And I was devastated. Devastated. You know, as much as a fifth grader could be devastated. (laughs) And Jason decided that he wanted to fight me over this girl, which I thought was kind of silly, but, you know, I said, okay, well, I'm not going to back down from a fight. And I know you look at me, you think, that guy, he's pretty tough. Uh, (laughs) And Jason and I circle up. It It was like an 80s romantic comedy. People gathering around for the big fight. And Jason gears up. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't never been in a fight before. But I had something, and I'm about to be very vulnerable with you. I used to wear this gigantic metal belt buckle with a polished stone in the middle of it. You can laugh. It's all right. I won't be offended. And Jason geared back to give me a punch in the gut, and he hit that belt buckle. And he broke a finger and bloodied his knuckles. (laughs) I won my only fight. That's the end of the story. I tell you that because I believe God protected me from what could have been a very awkward situation in the midst of what was, admittedly, at fifth grade, a kind of a painful deal. How much more important is it for God to protect you in this day and age from the things of your life? Let me tell you some statistics. 50 to 60% of marriages have been affected by infidelity. 22% of men and 14% of women have admitted to having an affair. One-third of married men will cheat on their wives. Nearly a quarter of all married women will cheat on their husbands. And more than 50% of marriages will be impacted by one of the spouses being unfaithful. You say, well, that's kind of staggering. Certainly it's better when you get inside the church. Certainly among believers, it's a better situation. Unfortunately, no. No. There is very little, if any, distinguishable change in the statistics for those who call themselves Christians. A Christianity Today study showed that 45% of Christians indicate having done something sexually inappropriate and 23% having an extramarital affair. And here's maybe the most important statistic of them all. A recent University of Chicago study discovered that a third of all marriages, a third of all marriages in this country in a divorce because of an affair. This is in a country where when asked if adultery was wrong, 90% of us said it's morally wrong. We are deceived. And I think we're deceived because adultery feeds one of the most destructive parts of our human nature. It feeds the idea that we, I, am all that matters. That I am the most important thing in the universe. And in the name of making me happy, we are willing to throw away so much and cause so much pain. Whether it's spiritual or physical, it's a selfish, self-destructive act. And we can make excuses to the contrary. We can talk about the fact that I'm so miserable, but this thing, this relationship, this person makes me so happy. We can make those excuses, but at the end of the day, they're all lies. 
In Zagreb, uh, Croatia, a new museum has been established. And it's the result of a multi-year, multi-nation, round-the-world exhibit in which people broke, brought iconic uh, memorabilia, if you will, from their broken relationships. And it was so overwhelming that they decided to give it a permanent home. And so they've created what's called the Museum of Broken Relationships. And it's one of the, it's one of the top tourist attractions in that block of Europe. There's over a thousand items in this museum. People have sent from all over the world, symbolic of their broken relationships. And as I was reading about this museum, I came across this quote. It says this, if they, meaning relationships, do work, that's because the rewards, i.e. emotional support, status, prestige, shored up by barriers to splitting up, like economics, cultural expectations, that they far outweigh the perceived alternative, which is loneliness, poverty, not being able to raise your kids the way you like, a sense of failure, of having wasted a large part of your life. The quote goes on, thing is, failure, as the Museum of Broken Relationships shows, is the stuff of life. One in three marriages break down within 10 years, a statistic that only rises in the event of cohabitation. Significant numbers of us engage in what anthropologists can't help but refer to as extra pair copulation. We are living longer. We raise our children, send them out, and continue to desire. And this is at the end, the, the last sentence is what captures me. Serial monogamy is the post-industrial condition. Adultery, the bittersweet icing on the cake. We live in a time and in an age and in a culture where the idea of adultery has been normalized. It's all around us. It's impacting our lives and it's changing our culture. But here's the thing. I'm not immune to it. You're not immune to it. None of us are immune to it. And in my own life, I've seen the same struggle and temptation. I too am bombarded by the message of the culture that I'm the most important person on the earth that I am my own boss, that I have to answer to no one, that I'll not get caught. And that's a lie. Because God's best for our life doesn't leave a trail of broken relationship, relationships, shattered lives, and a dying soul. So I stand here today knowing full well that as much of half of the people in this room have been affected by adultery in some way. And there are also people in this room who are in the middle of it right now. And there are some of you who have been negatively impacted and affected by it. And I want to put you at ease. Let me say before we go any further that we this morning are going to embrace the idea that God loves us no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter where we're going. That his grace for us is sufficient. Fortunately for us, God understands this all too well. You see, he takes up a bunch of scripture warning humankind of the inherent danger of adultery because he knows about it firsthand. 
He wants to protect us. We are all broken people, and he wants to protect us because he knows the pain firsthand. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6 and 9. Jesus is, or the, the Bible is talking about the nation of Israel. And it says, During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. Ezekiel chapter 16 says this again about Israel. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. You see, these were God's chosen people. These were the people that God loved as a husband loves his wife, as a groom loves the bride. And they cheated on him repeatedly. So the God of the universe knows what it feels like to be cheated on. And he knows the pain that it causes. Because he knows these things, his desire is to protect us. Let me tell you, God has a specific and perfect plan for your life. It's perfect, and it will produce the best possible outcome for you. And when we adulterate that plan, we are in fact turning down the volume on God's will for us and turning up the volume on our own agenda. We lose our true north, and it's in these moments that we lose sight of God. For some of you this morning, you're currently in an adulterous relationship. Maybe it's with another person. Maybe it's with your computer screen when you're alone. Or maybe it's with your job, your wallet. You fill in the blank. Anytime we place in the driver's seat something other than God's perfect plan for us, we are cheating on God. If that's you this morning, stop it. Just stop it. I'm so tired of watching marriages fail because one or both persons decided to put something else in the place of God's perfect plan. I'm tired of seeing my friends check out of their marriages because they didn't want to have or didn't have the guts to stop. I'm tired of seeing people lose their soul because they chose a counterfeit version of God's best for their life. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that's easier said than done. I know that. I agree with you. But ask any 12-stepper. If recovery was easy, they'll tell you, no, it's the hardest thing they've ever had to do. And there's failure along the way, and we slip back into bad habits and bad behavior. But none of that is an excuse to not stop. And so with all the grace and mercy and gentleness that I can muster. If that's you this morning, stop. And for those of you that are making an effort to stop, God will meet you where you are. It's his promise. These pages are filled with that promise. That when you are struggling and when you need a way out of the hole, he will extend his hand and he will lift you out of that hole.
Now let me pause here for a moment because I know there are some in this room, maybe as many as half, who have been cheated on. And let me tell you, I know that pain. I understand that on a human level, but God understands it at the very core of who you are. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened to you. But he wants to take your pain and he wants to bring healing to your life. It may right now feel as if your life is over, but it isn't. Your soul may feel, your soul may, may feel dead, but he wants to awaken your soul. So what does this mean? I'm going to give you three quick things and then we'll be done. The first thing that you need to think about as you leave this place today is, is stop and repent. Stop what you're doing and repent to everyone you hurt. Start with God and then work the list. Look at the way King David prayed after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba in Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge me. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness. Even in the womb, you taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity, but create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit with me. And the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. The second thing, identify and cut it off. Identify your weakness or weaknesses and render them powerless over you. Cut them out of your life. This is radical stuff. We must die to ourselves so that we can live. But Dave, you don't understand. I, you're right, I don't, but God does. If your deal is internet pornography, get rid of your computer. But Dave, I have a job to do. I have to work on a computer. Get another job. It's killing you, and you've got to stop. I know that sounds radical, but so does cutting off your arm and gouging out your eyeballs, which is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. I've already read the first part, but let me finish it. You have heard that it's said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Stop and repent. Identify and cut it out. And then the last thing that I'll tell you is this. Make it right again. And if you think option one and option two are difficult, option three is much, much harder. Because making it right means earning your kids' trust back. It means proving to your spouse that you're really committed to making it work. This is about patiently answering the same questions over and over again until the tears are dried up. This is about being consistent in the good days and the bad days. Scripture tells us that, and if I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, 
but then they turn away from their sin and do what is just and right if they give back what they took in a pledge for a loan, return what they have stolen, follow the decrees that give life and do no evil, that person will surely live. They will not die. None of the sins that person has committed will be remembered against them. They have done what is just and right and they will surely live. You know, we do all these things. We stop and we repent. We identify, we cut it, we work to make it right, we, re, we work to restore, but at the end of the day, we lay our heads down on our pillow at night and we are still broken, wounded people in need of a Savior. Regardless of your role in the situation, the cheater or the cheated on, whether it's spiritual or physical, whether it's mental or actual, He wants to make you whole. You see, repetitive sin deadens your soul. And God's desire is to awaken it. And so this morning, I'm going to take just a few minutes and I want you to bow your heads. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to take a minute with God. And I want you to confess to Him the stuff of your life. Tell him that you're weak. Tell him how you've messed up. Tell him how you've put other people and other stuff in the spot that's reserved for his perfect will for you. that none of us are free from adultery. That we're all simply one decision away from moral failure. We confess that to you. Our bodies were made for you. Give us the strength and the courage this day to live our lives for you not for ourselves. Awaken our souls and make us whole again. Listen, I know this is an awkward, awkward topic. 
and, and I know it felt maybe heavy to some of you. And I, quite frankly, I'm not apologetic about that, but I recognize that because this is a heavy thing. And there's really, I tried, believe me, I tried. There's no fun way to talk about it. We're all impacted by it. We're all equally susceptible to it. But we serve a God. And if you can't say that this morning, that's your next step. To find your way to God. But we serve a God that meets us where we are. And says, I'm here to awaken your soul. Stand with me as we pray and then we're going to sing. Father, we are incredibly grateful for your love, for your ability to forgive us and make us whole. And Father, I pray for those in this room who this week have some business to do with you and with the people in their lives. We ask, God, that you would give them the strength, the courage, the hope to make the decisions and do the things that they need to do. For those in this room who are on the ugly side of adultery, I ask for your peace. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your love to be heaped upon them in such a way that they would know that you're real and that you desire to carry them through this very ugly season in their life. And God, for the rest of us, for all of us in this room, Remind us that we are one step away, one bad decision away. Keep us close to you as we walk. And God, as your church leaves the building, give them the strength and the courage to live their life for you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's sing.